um, but they're working together like al almost all day, every day for, for, the, sure. for the entirety of that project. And that's, that's not something that you really experience in, in right. academia. <laughs> On today's show, we're talking to Oliver Parson, a principal data scientist with Hive. Why are we talking to a principal data scientist and not our usual CTO or MD or leader of a tech organization? Because data scientists are probably the most in-demand professionals in the industry. And there seems to be a debate at the moment over whether or not they need a PhD. Increasingly, when I go to conferences and I hear people talk, they say a data scientist needs a PhD. Why? Why should someone need to be able to build the engine to drive the car? It's that conversation that I wanted to have with a data scientist, and Oliver is candid and open about not only that, but the relationship between academia and enterprise. I'm David Savage. This is Tech Talks. It's your twice-weekly technology podcast discussing the ideas and themes across the tech industry, sharing a little bit of tech news, and giving you a bit of peer insight. I hope you enjoy the show, and have a lovely weekend. Joining me on the show for the first time today, we have Alyssa. How are you? Hello, guys. I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, podcast debut. Very exciting. You're breathing okay? I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. A little bit nervous, but we'll get through it. I find it hilarious that you were like, will people understand me? It's like you're South mm. African. You're not, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's I, not I've like you've got a, the weird I've, accent. I've had a few comments um, on my... Everyone usually loves my accent, but um, I've got a few miscommunication comments. Maybe it's just my, my twang. That's interesting, because, you know, South Africans always struck me as a bit kind of like love or hate. Um, okay, so let's talk about the fact that <laughs> I, I am very... Well, it's, it's a huge hatred relationship at the moment. I don't know if you know, we just won the World Cup. So, sorry. I wasn't going to say it. <laughs> I suppose I left it open for you to bring that up. Yeah, well. But you're on Tech Talks. Finally, it's taken me long enough. Oh, right, okay. I feel like that's an accusation in some way. Very much so, David. And I, I noticed that you're watching the sound wave because we're recording. You're fascinated by technology. That's a good start. Well, I am in a tech company, tech yeah. industry. I mean, Audacity's brilliant, but it does look like it was built in the 80s. It does a little bit, yeah. Yeah, okay. Anyway, we should get into today's interview, which is all about data science. We will hand over to Oliver. Oliver is a principal data scientist, but given the amount of chatter around data scientists and the amount that they are in demand, it felt appropriate to go to someone who was in the thick of it and talk to them about some of the issues. So on today's show, we're talking to Oliver, Oliver Parson. You are a principal data scientist with Hive. Thanks for coming on the show and talking to us. Thank How, you. How's your day going? Yeah, my day's fine, thanks. Still recovering from the weekend, but... Yes. Okay, thanks. <laughs> a heavy one? Uh, just lots to do. Seeing friends and family and you, yeah. know, you know how it is. <laughs> lots of traveling. Yeah, absolutely. So look, um, we were keen to talk to you because you come from an academic background, you're a PhD, uh -huh. and you're a data scientist. And it keeps coming up in conversation. Um, in particular, actually, uh, earlier this year when I, was, when I was talking at AI Expo, people saying, you've got to have a PhD to be a data scientist. And so I thought, well, what better to do than go talk to someone who's a principal data scientist with a PhD and go, hey, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting question. So having a PhD definitely helps when going into data science, but I wouldn't say it's necessary. So if you look at my team at Hive, uh, I think maybe half or two thirds of us have PhDs. Yeah. So so most, but not everyone. So it, it definitely helps, definitely gives you uh, a lot of skills from kind of scientific skills, if you like. So in terms of designing experiments and 
testing methodologies and drawing conclusions from those. Mm. Um, but PhDs aren't the only way of learning those skills. It's just a, a, I, th- I think a relatively natural skill set and a great yeah. skill set to bring into data science. So you, your um, PhD and, and postdoctorate, that was um, University of Southampton. Yeah. And what did you focus on in, in those studies? So although my undergrads, my PhD and my postdoc were all kind of in computer science, it was always heavily applied to energy monitoring. Yeah. So the focus of my PhD was trying to uh, understand the energy consumption in houses, mm-hmm. basically to give people the... Um, information they need to save energy if, if they want to. So, for instance, to find out, uh, am I spending more on heating than I should be? Mm. Or uh, is something else in my home inefficient? Does the fridge need replacing? These, these sorts of questions. And seeing if we can tease that information out of smart meter data. So, for me, it was a very natural transition, given that my academic work was so heavily applied to um, an industry which, let's face it, like smart metering and so on has been, it's been growing pretty rapidly since since I started my PhD in 2010. But was it your intention to go into enterprise? No, not at all. <laughs> so I've never really had a long-term career plan of where I wanted to be in 10 or 20 years. Yeah. I've always sort of, uh, at each stage, looked ahead and said, what do, what do I enjoy doing? What, how, can I, how can I be paid to do this thing more? So uh, um, I, I think during my PhD, I was looking around, kind of looking whether I wanted to stay in academia. I don't think I really wanted to go into teaching. Mm. So a, a postdoc was was kind of natural. I was enjoying my research, but but during my postdoc, I did lots and lots of consultancy work. So then I got a very good idea of uh, really how uh, my research related to industry and how much I would enjoy that transition. Right? Mm. And obviously, I did enjoy it because I'm I'm here now. But a lot of people have spoken about the fact that industry and academia speak two different, slightly different languages and conveying um, your thoughts and ideas in academia in a way that enterprise makes sense to enterprise and vice versa is, is, is the challenging piece. Do you, do you think that's the case? I, I totally agree with that. It's really challenging. But as I said, because my research was so heavily applied, it always had industry links. So that was something that I was always practicing throughout my academic mm. life anyway. So for instance, even the academic projects I worked on received a lot of industry funding. So mm. the industry interests in those projects were very clear. And similarly with consulting, consultancy, which is entirely industry funded, those things, again, very clear, just understanding what businesses want and understanding how to communicate findings back to them. So at, at least for me, industry always had an involvement in all of my academic work. So these, these two things didn't feel like millions of miles away, but I can, I can totally understand if you're at the other end of the spectrum in academia where you're working on something which is uh, mostly or entirely theoretical, mm. then those those two worlds seem much further apart. Are there, are there people on your team who who have more of that challenge coming into the into the industry? Uh, yes, definitely. So as I said, I came from computer science, which I think has so many parallels with say what we do in tech companies. Yeah. But if you come from other sciences, things like uh, physics, um, one at the forefront of my mind is astronomy. Yeah. These these are uh, 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 disciplines where. Actually, you see lots of people in data science that have these backgrounds, um, but I think uh, scientific skills are obviously the same as you would pick up in computer science. They just maybe have uh, less of uh, like fundamentals in terms of programming, mm. which you have to pick up along the way rather than being taught it as part of a part of a degree. So, do you, do you, who is it? Do you think? Obviously, there's got to be a meeting in the middle, but does it tend to be that someone like yourself coming out of academia has to reach out and try and learn the language of business? Because I suppose that's the world you're, you're going into. So it seems to make sense that you need to learn how these guys are speaking. Or is it that 
business needs to do more to understand the academic community if that is where this untapped skill set that they're in need of sits. I mean, it's great that data science is now a thing. Yeah. At least when I was doing my uh, PhD, I, I think it was kind of just emerging as a topic. I'm not sure now we know exactly what data science means, but... <laughs> Uh, at, at least now we sort of have a bit of middle ground and we and we can appreciate that. There are skills that are useful from academia uh, that can be applied into industry. So that's great that we have this thing to talk about. But on the other hand, uh, like for sure, I, th- I feel like people from both sides need to meet in the middle, mm. right? So uh, there are certainly um, uh, like academic programs where they have very little industry um, kind of connections and uh, if you work in these domains, then you, you just have a much less experience talking to people from companies and, and so on, uh, which does it, which, which, yeah, I guess makes the transition quite tricky. So certainly like learning like those sorts of, I don't know, I don't know if they're communication skills or just being able to appreciate really what companies are interested in. And uh, I guess appreciating what skills are transferable, mm. then I think, I feel like it makes something like a job interview much, much easier. You mentioned there the transition, you went through a program. So I didn't, I didn't go through a program. For me, the transition was very uh, like gradual. So right, okay, I, 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 I did two years of postdoc and throughout those two years, uh, I, I was technically employed by the university, but I was doing more and more consultancy work. Right. So, so then going full time with, with a company that I actually loads of consultancy work with was, was really simple for me. But if you, if you quit uh, academia in one go and then go straight into uh, full-time employment with a company that maybe all you've all you've done is having an interview with them so you don't quite know what you're getting yourself into yeah, yeah. i can understand that's a, a much harder leap to make there are firms out there um that are offering assistance to help people move from academia to enterprise what is it do you think that they're offering that that is successful and people in academia should look to and go oh you know what we, we need to tap into this so certainly the program that I'm most familiar is S2DS or mm-hmm. Science to Data Science. Yeah. And that course is is quite interesting. It's it's only a I think it's a five or six week boot camp. Um but it's interesting because the vast majority of uh the the things that the, the students learn through this program is how to work on a group project for a company. Right. And that's something that they don't really get from academia. They, why, why is that different? Because well, I assume you work in, in groups. In, well, you, you can tell that I'm not academic <laughs> at all. Uh, <laughs> so, so I think research is generally organised into groups, right. but it's pretty much one individual per problem. So for instance, like take a PhD topic, for example. Mm. Like you almost by definition will be the only person in the world working on like that niche of a problem. And although maybe there are people working on similar problems, it's kind of like one person to one problem. So although you're kind of organized into a group in, in kind of the greater university structure, there's, there's much less collaboration between individuals than there is in industry. Mm. So uh, say, take, for example, the, the, um, the projects that are set by industry for the science to data science um, uh, boot camp. This is a really kind of uh, intense piece of group work. So, so you get four or five um, students who are working together over, I guess, like a, I think it's four weeks that they work on the group project for. I think the, the bit before that is, um, is taught material. Um, but they're working together like al- almost all day, every day for, for, the, sure. for the entirety of that project. And that's, that's not something that you really experience in, in right. academia. <laughs> so look, why is it that enterprises, or some people in enterprises, I shouldn't say enterprise, 
generally that's a sweeping a sweeping statement but some people in enterprise certainly and it seems to be people who don't necessarily have an academic background themselves have got it in their head that you must have a phd to be a data scientist i, I think phds on paper look impressive right and it's it's good to be able to quote these numbers and say ah oh, we've got 10 PhDs in our company, or 20 PhDs, or this proportion of our people in our company have PhDs. That sounds great, and and for sure, like it, it it's they they have many useful skills that it, that it's mm. great to be able to boast about. But I wouldn't say it's a requirement. Like there are still other ways of picking up these skills, and I know plenty of excellent data scientists who don't have PhDs. So there are certainly exceptions to this rule. Um, I would just say it's it's probably just more common than not to have a PhD. I, I wouldn't say it's essential. <laughs> so if you're, not, if you're not coming through the academic route and you want to be a data scientist, what are the steps that someone should take? Because it is, it's an area where there's huge career opportunities. I mean, it's, it's probably the most in-demand and yet uh, the smallest candidate pool out there right now. So it's, it's a great place to be. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a really interesting one. So like, if, if you don't have a PhD and you don't, uh, you don't fancy like studying for three or four years <laughs> and, and, and going after it, um, I would say... At least in data science, the quality of online learning materials is just incredible. Mm. Like free online learning materials, sure. Like there, there are excellent courses that you can pay for. But I'm, I'm just amazed at the amounts of really high quality, like, like uh, top tier learning resources that are available for free. So I've taken lots of courses in machine learning, a bit in deep learning or data analysis, mm. uh, and I would say these are the these are the skills that's very easy, like technical skills that it's very easy to acquire through online study. It's much harder to do something uh, like uh, practicing working in a team to deliver a, a, a piece of analysis or, or a, a machine learning project in a short space of time. That's something that you can, you only learn by experience. You can't, yeah. you can't really do an online course in that. Uh, what, what have you enjoyed most about coming into Enterprise? You, you, you said it was not something you necessarily envisaged, but then whilst I assume there are some frustrations, there are with every job, um, what, what stuff has really kind of been pleasant and surprising? I, I think a couple of things. For one, the speed of innovation is mm. really exciting. So uh, on one hand, that's, that's kind of scary because you have to deliver things very quickly and you have to work out how to uh, deliver something quite basic very quickly and be yeah. able to follow that up with something more complex, more accurate, whatever it is you're, you're working on. That's something that you don't really have to do in academia. You can sort of be spared this kind of iterative delivery where you can mm. sort of sit back and deliver something uh, very complete in six months or 12 months. Yeah. But you, you just don't have that sort of, uh, don't have that sort of luxury in, in industry. And I, I guess the other thing is it's uh, at least working on uh, smart homes. Uh, these are products that lots of people are familiar with and they're very easy to talk to your friends and family about. Right. I find it's, it's pretty hard to even like the highest level elevator pitch of your PhD topic, people lose interest like it, almost immediately. They're, they're, quite, they're quite hard to relate to. Whereas uh, working on uh, developing products that people can go and buy and have seen the advertising on TV and maybe their friend has, they're, they're just, I think they're inherently more interesting and it's, it's cool to work on something that then you, you talk to a friend of a friend and they say, oh, I've got that thing, I love it, this, this yeah. reason, and oh, you could improve that. And Not as likely to happen <laughs> with an academic paper. Exactly, yeah. So you're, you're lucky if you get a, a couple of hundred reads <laughs> from an academic paper, which, which is, is really sad. But yeah. I mean, yeah, as I say, it's, it's easy to relate to and, and it's cool to work on stuff that people love. Yes, so. no, of course. Um, look, would you, 
I'm not, obviously, it's difficult to do this in audio form, but we do have the show notes that we attach to each episode. You mentioned there are some great free materials. Mm-hmm. Would you share those with us so we can stick them on the show notes if anyone's interested? Yeah, of course. Cool. Well, look, it's 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 been fascinating to talk to you because it is an interesting area, and there's there's a lot to think about. I think for both enterprise and academia, and also for students who are looking to kind of move whether or not they're a PhD student or not. So I appreciate your time, and um, I hope that the rest of the week is a bit more mellow <laughs> after your hectic weekend. Cool. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Right, you've listened to this several times mm. and managed not to be overly bored by myself and all of us. That's probably quite a good sign. Yeah. What stuff jumped out to you immediately? Um, okay, so uh, pretty much the end bit because it's the one I remember. No, I'm joking. Um, pretty much the end bit when you guys go in, do you need um, the PhD yeah. to, to go into the specific role, data science? Um, everyone keeps on telling me that the, the data science role uh, is a very kind of new position mm-hmm. um, in companies. But what I found is that there's probably always been a need for it there. Um, and there's people in companies that have been doing it. And for, from my side, I think what I've seen is that I think if you have, let's say, 10 years experience, mm-hmm. the guys we're dealing with here, they're all in tech. They love what they're doing. They're learning every day as much as they can. They're going on, like Oliver said, they're going on and doing all these courses and um, videos and self-help stuff. Well, not self-help, but, but kind of self-learning, yeah, right? Yeah. Continuous learning um, and self-learning, yeah. And they, 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 love, they love the technology. They love the space they work in. So I personally think that uh, you don't really need this kind of big fancy degree to go into and be good at what you're doing. Yeah, um, it's, it's good that Oliver backs that up. And especially as he is someone who holds a PhD. Mm-hmm. But he makes the point that a lot of companies say it looks good on paper and it's nice for them to externally say, we've got X many PhDs. Mm. Which is almost like a sales kind of piece pitch. when they're dealing with external organisations or yeah. when they're trying to attract more staff into an organisation. And that's worrying. And it, I, it, when I talk to people, it does seem to be people without PhDs who are leading organisations that are almost pushing this agenda that PhDs are somehow mm-hmm. terribly necessary. And I was at a conference earlier this year, as I think I mentioned to Oliver, where the, 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 that was the narrative that was coming out of this panel that I was chairing. One person who turned around and said, look, you don't need to be able to build the car to drive it. Yeah. And I thought that was a really nice kind of analogy that just because you're not a mechanic doesn't mean you can't get behind the seat of a car and make sure that you get the right results from it. The heads of guys and the, the, the chief guys that I'm speaking to um, are looking for... Companies have specific problems, problems specific to them. They're looking for people that have had industry industry work, industry knowledge, um, dealing with these problems. Instead of looking at job titles, oh, you went to this university, oh, you have this degree, we kind of look at, okay, what is the problem here that your organization needs? Mm. And what type of person do you need? With what kind of experience do you need? With, with what kind of experience they have, do you need to kind of help you out? I think experience counts way more than a PhD. I think it's and I think a lot of people will agree with me on that one. I think it's interesting that he talks about the idea that... Um, well, when I asked him whether or not he ever envisaged himself going into enterprise, mm. he said he didn't have this big career plan. And very much his mindset, coming from academia, was what, what will enable me to carry on doing the thing that I love, rather than... Sometimes if you think about engineers they maybe get accused of being a bit mercenary and chasing mm. pound pound signs mm. rather than mm. 
going and working somewhere just because it's a job that excites them. Um, but equally, people coming from academia, therefore, that, that belies a different mindset. Uh, and it's that difficulty of, of understanding right. what companies are really interested in. Right. And I suppose if you are of the mindset of, I just want to do something that I really love and hopefully that, that, that that's my life and that's great, mm. versus a business which is all about growth and profit, which is the reality of a lot of the world, that's miles apart. And you can understand where this kind of slight discourse break is happening uh, between people coming from academia and people in enterprise. I know. I, I think you just do need to find that middle ground. And I think Oliver's he's really found it quite well. Um, coming from what, if we go back to what he said in his interview and what he focused on um, in when he was doing his PhD was around this making houses better. Yeah, How it was heavily we, implied. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what Hive does. Yeah, um, and, and look, he's, he's perfectly aligned to the, to the businesses that he works in, but he does make the point that, you know, he's got physics, physics and astrom- astronomy, can't talk for some reason today, uh, astronomy PhDs in the team as well. So that's not so applied, and, and it takes them longer, I suppose, to pick up the fundamentals. Definitely not, but people will go for what they're interested in, and yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously he's, he does was interested in it back then, but now he's happy doing what he's doing at Hive. Do you think, though, like, science. if you think about a lot of the businesses that, that you either work in or have worked for, mm-hmm. do people at the top of those organisations really get that? Mm-hmm. Do, they, do they... Sometimes... If they are very much of the of the business mindset, traditional business mindset, it's quite difficult for them to find someone who's like not money motivated, buttons being pushed by different different aspects. Exactly, I, and I think you know what, Dave, and that's why I've always really loved the startup environment because I think if you if you go back to looking at looking at startup companies, they care about the organisation, yeah. they care about who they're hiring. They're very kind of picky when it comes to, okay, you're going to love my company as much as I do. And I don't think it's always got to do with profit, but that just comes from my very soft heart. It would seem that data science is a little bit of a, an exaggerated example of the battle going on for the soul of technology at the minute. Yeah, okay. Explain that one. I didn't get that. <laughs> well, you know, are we, are we all about growth and profit or are we a little bit more, let's think about the people? We're always let's think about the people. Well, We're yeah. Always. We should this, all be let's think about the people. The academics, so, very much. They, definitely. Okay. Although interesting that they're not as adept at group working. That threw me. Really? I didn't I didn't see that coming. So I, I, I don't know. Have you, I don't know if you've been to university. Yes. But... I didn't do very well because I didn't study very hard. <laughs> so I, I, come, <laughs> I come from a marketing background, went to university. And when you're studying communications, marketing, anything like that, um, you work in a lot of group environments, right? Um, and you're putting you're putting all these people's really good ideas, and you're making them think of one. Group work is awful. I hate working in groups. I completely understand what he is saying. No, but in terms of the fact that academia, they're like you're in this big group, but you're getting told to focus on one particular problem, and they're not really collaborating in the way that you have to in a business environment. Oh, I guess we will end it there, though. Okay. We'll go to our advert break. When we come back, we're going to discuss a quick bit of technology news. 
Once a month, Tech Talks opens The Tuck Shop, a YouTube tech news roundup, which is kindly carried by Disruptive Live. Disruptive Live is the UK's first and only 24-7 TV channel for the technology industry. Stay up to date with all the latest industry news by following our regular talk shows broadcast live across the Disruptive Live website and social media channels. You can also catch Disruptive Live at some of the largest global technology events, broadcasting from London, Manchester, Singapore, Dubai, and many more. Welcome back to Tech Talks. We're going to round off your week with a quick bit of technology news. Google are going to offer personal banking accounts in partnership with Citigroup. Big tech extending their fingers even further. Mm. Would you open an account with Google? Um, no. No? No, I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Go on. Um... I I remember Google when Google first came out and and they just went through this well recently a couple of years back when I was still in university they went through a kind of rebrand where all they did was change their um, their logo do you remember mm. um, and I remember what a huge thing it was they had this huge following I just I take that all out because it was shit take that all out what I'm going to say the reason I wouldn't open a bank account with Google is based on the fact that I don't see Google as someone who can look after my money. I see Google as someone who looks after my Google searches. Okay. Could Just you there. could you see Apple or Facebook looking after your money? Apple do look after your money a little bit because you have that ah. Apple Pay now, So it's not a problem right? with big tech. It's more a problem with Google themselves. Yeah, but you, no one sees Google as a, oh, we're going to partner with it. No, come on, Google, what are you doing? Oh, I think they could pivot. They've got the resources. And I mean, Amazon have so many different aspects of banking already available I think maybe my mind's not open enough I mean didn't Amazon started as just a book a book company yeah exactly yeah, okay. but it's interesting that your initial reaction is no because I wouldn't trust them with my money no. do you have Monzo or Revolut or anything like that um, no I don't I'm very old school when it comes I have a oh. bank account and a savings account traditional I'm from Africa we did it we, <laughs> we, <laughs> we haven't moved that far from a traditional bank account so what is interesting is this comes a day after a whistleblower revealed the existence of Project Nightingale so Google's partnership with a healthcare giant that could give Google access to personal medical data to up to 50 million million Americans and there is this big point at the minute that when we talked about it on the show recently that there's almost like a data land grab going on um, and Angela Merkel has urged Europe to seize control of data from Silicon Valley tech giants and establish digital sovereignty instead of relying on Amazon Google and Microsoft and that's interesting I 100% I 100% agree with that okay and um, but so I, th- I think they already have so much of our data they, they could potentially control us now they Google knows what I look at all the time Amazon knows what I buy and um, which means they know what my interests are what my hobbies are I, we we give away so much of our knowledge to our bank accounts they know where you are Google knows where I'm walking to where I'm going to go, my plans. Okay, so this, this is fine, but then who would you trust to regulate instead? Do you trust our government or the EU to regulate? Um, I'm going to have to go, I'm going to have to go with none of them. <laughs> Are you allowed, <laughs> is, the problem, is that, right? a, is is that a point? Is yeah, that of point course it is. I'm like, going off the radar, I'm turning off, turn the microphone off. No, <laughs> this is interesting, right? Because we know that we don't trust big tech uh, because there's no checks and balance. Leaks happen. Yeah. Uh, we also know that we don't trust governments because they're wholly ineffective and they're also 
so short-termism in their thinking because of electoral cycles that they're ineffective. Right. So, what's the alternative? Who do you trust? Like I said, we go off the radar. We're going to have to buy an island and we're all moving there. You're going to stuff no. money under the pillow. <laughs> well, well, that's under the, the thing. Under the mattress. You, you don't even get paid in cash anymore. They know everything. We, we have no reason, but to, I completely agree with, with what they're trying to achieve, yeah? But I'm... Oh, from, from Google's point of view, it makes perfect yeah, sense. Yeah, completely agree, but... I, I, where we are at now we have no choice but to trust someone Um, well there we go it's an interesting piece of tech news that basically seems to be scaring the hell out of our new co-host well being on the podcast is scaring the hell out of me Ah, now ah. I've just now I've just learnt that people are going to try to control me well no because you're not going to have a Google bank account we've learnt that much (laughs) Um, Apple if you want to know Ali might well be interested in your services uh, for your financial gain Um, but anyway have a lovely weekend Thanks, guys. Love you being on the show. Bye, Dave.